You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. And welcome, welcome, welcome this glorious Sunday morning, at least glorious here in Los Angeles, California. And uh, I don't know what it's like the rest of the East, but I heard the weather might be getting a little bit better. And uh, I am your host here on Pet Life Radio's Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff, and I am Dr. Jeff Werber, here for the next 30 minutes just to talk about pets, to have a good time, give you lots of information, free information, and not only free information. But for anyone who sends me an email, I'm going to go through a couple I've gotten this week, or calls in live, 877-385-8882, or joins in on the conversation here at PetLifeRadio.com, or sends me a quick email to drjeff at PetLifeRadio.com. We will send you out a free ProSense and a free Kong toy. Thanks to our sponsors, of course, ProSense Pet Products, basically veterinary quality products that you can get at a fraction of the cost at some mass market locations like a Walmart or a Target. They're fantastic products. And also Kong toys. And for Kong, need I say more, they are one of the best products out there. They've been around for a long time. And we want to thank them for helping us with our show. So last week, well, we answered an email from JB. And his question was, the issues introducing a new puppy into a house with a resident dog. And I was about to answer the question. And I left everybody with the opportunity to kind of get a hold of me, send me a text, and to find out, to answer, see if what they think is the right approach uh, is going to work. And interestingly, the more and more pet parents I talk to, and I mean not only parents of pets, but I mean parents as well, going through the same thought process when they're going to introduce a new baby into the household with a resident pet, especially when it comes to a resident dog. And the question is, how do we do it? And my premise is, just based on experience, that most of you are going to do it wrong. And I was hoping, hoping that someone would say, no, this is the way you're supposed to do it. And I got a couple of responses, and they were all wrong. So here's what typically is going to happen when we have this introduction. We know we're interested in getting a puppy or a new baby's coming home. It's rarely a surprise, right? And we know there's a resident dog. How do we make it happen smoothly? So here's what typically happens. Of course, the new baby, the new puppy is so exciting. And when it comes over, when it comes home for the first time, we want to shower it with attention, shower this puppy, shower this baby with affection. And much to the dismay, of course, of the resident dog, it's like, hey, what happened to me? What am I, chopped liver here? And so what do we do? Typically, what we do is when the puppy is asleep. And certainly, as we know, puppies are going to sleep, oh God, up to 12 to 18 hours a day. New baby goes down for their nap and then goes to sleep. So what do we do? Well, here's what we do. We feel so guilty about our resident dog that when our puppy is asleep, when the baby's asleep, when the new boyfriend or girlfriend is not there, and what do we do? We just pour on the affection to our resident dog. Okay, buddy, we still love you. You'll always be our number one. But meanwhile, Think about it for a second. What have you just taught your resident dog? You just taught your resident dog that life is better without this new puppy, without the new baby, without the new boyfriend or girlfriend. So what are you, in essence, doing? You are reinforcing 
that life is better when this new entity is not there. And this builds up resentment when this new entity is there. And when it comes to a boyfriend, girlfriend, well, you can maybe have some more options. But when it comes to a new puppy or a new baby, you can't have that. So what most of us naturally, instinctively want to do is not going to work. So here's what we need to do. As I said, it's rarely a surprise. When I read these stories, you hear these stories, you read the, the throwaway magazines about someone didn't know they were pregnant, and all of a sudden, right, the baby pops out. That's not the way it works in 99.9% of the cases, unless this person is extremely obese and not paying attention to most of their lives. So most women carrying children are well aware that they are, and there's a due date, and there's preparations, and we know it. Okay. Likewise, usually I don't, and I usually frown again. Someone coming over to your house one day, knocking on the door, and say, "Okay, here's your new puppy." What? what? New puppy? What? What do you mean? So we know that it needs to be something that is thought out, something that is well planned, and there's going to be a date, a pickup date, and you know it's going to be coming. You know the day you've decided yes, you're going to go to that shelter. You know when you're going to call that rescue group. So these are all knowns. So it's rarely a surprise. So what we want to do is the following. It is all part of the preparation. And here's how it goes. Very easy. So, and this is, you know, I hope, JB, you're paying attention. This is how it works. That before the new entity comes, whether it's the baby, whether it's a new puppy, whatever the case may be, you are, chances are, going to have purchased something that is going to be associated with this, with this new baby or the puppy. Whether it's going to be pajamas or a blanket that you're going to, the baby's going to be wrapped in when she comes, he or she comes home from the hospital. Whether it's going to be a leash or a collar or a toy that's going to go to the new puppy. So what you want to do, since you are prepared, you're very responsible pet parents, very responsible kid parents, so you're going to have something in advance. And the key is this. About a week or so before the arrival, as I said, be it a child, be it a baby, I mean, be it a puppy or a kitten, you are going to start withdrawing, withholding some of your attention to your resident dog. And part of that withdrawal is going to be not giving him or her her favorite treat. I'm not saying be mean. I'm not saying ignore. I'm just saying hold back a little bit and hold back especially their favorite treat. They can still get some of their other treats, but not their favorite. And what you do is you bring over to the puppy that collar, that leash, that chew toy, whatever was going to be given for the new puppy. You let the, if it's a, obviously if it's a baby, it's going to be the pajamas, it's going to be a blanket, right? And you're going to bring it over to the resident dog, let them sniff it, which naturally they will, and just go bonkers with affection. <gasps> oh my God, you're such a good boy, you're such a good girl, and give that favorite treat. And you're going to do this a few times a day for that last week before the arrival. So basically, now what's going to happen is your rug is going to associate that smell, whatever it is, with the treat. And they're going to get this affection. They're going to get this attention. And they're going to get their favorite treat. And they're going to start to like it. Then, fast forward, the day, the evening, whatever, the puppy comes home, the new baby comes home, and you're carrying that new baby. And immediately, you're not going to shoo the resident dog away. You're going to Ask the resident dog to come over and take a sniff. Of course, the baby is on your arms. The puppy's in your arms, well protected. And you're going to shower your resident dog with affection. Give that favorite treat again. And basically, for the next several days, several weeks, when the baby is out and around, when the puppy is out and about, that's when you pay 
a lot of attention to the resident dog. And here's the clincher. When the baby is taking its nap or asleep, when the puppy is in its crate or confined to its pen taking its nap, you are going to go back to that kind of ignoring the resident dog. You are not going to make life better for them in the absence of that baby or that puppy or that new kitten. You are going to kind of ignore them again. And when are they going to get their major attention? When are they going to get that fantastic, their favorite treat? Only in the presence of the new puppy. Only in the presence of that new baby. In the presence of that new kitten. So what's going to happen is they are going to start looking forward to having the baby around. They are going to look forward to that puppy or kitten because they know that their affection is going to come when the puppy or the baby are around. And the truth of the matter is, guys, don't kid yourself. This baby, this new puppy is not going to remember any of this, but the resident dog absolutely will. So it's okay to so, you know have one of you, if it's a couple, hold the baby while the other one is just showering affection to the resident dog or the new puppy, whatever the case may be, is you are going to have one parent working with the puppy or the baby or the kitten or whatever it is, and the other one working with the resident dog. Now, here's another thing. If the new entity is in fact a person, like a new spouse, a new boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, and again, there potentially could be this feeling of being displaced. So what you want to do there is likewise. What you want to do there is have the new person be the one to give the hugs and kisses and to deliver that treat. So now the association will be, God, I like that new person around because I have not gotten my hot dog or my favorite treat in three weeks. And all of a sudden, this new person comes in the house and I'm just getting all my hot dogs. So you have to think outside the box. Think of not what you think will be better for the resident dog, meaning now that the house is quiet, now everybody's asleep, right? Now I get to play with my resident dog. No, 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 no. Now you start kind of ignoring the resident dog as well and wait till the new entity, whether it's a puppy, a kitten, a dog, a new person, is there. So, JP, I hope that answers your question. I hope you understand the logic behind this because it's, it's sort of anti-intuitive. It's counterintuitive to think that, that you really want to pay more attention when this new person or new baby or a new uh, puppy or kitten are around. But that's the way it needs to be. That's how you're going to minimize the resentment. That's how you're going to build the environment where, if anything, that resident dog is going to be overly protective with the new puppy, overly protective of the new baby. And I have that in my household because I have a granddaughter who comes over. And boy, one of my Frenchies, he is so protective over this kid. It's unbelievable. And when, even when one of the, some of the other dogs come around to play, he gets in the way and starts snarling at them. It's like, uh-uh, she's mine. She's my baby. And that's what you want. You want to have this environment where they become very, very protective. So anyway, that was easy for JP, right? You know what JP did? JP sent me an email to drjeff, drjeff at petliferadio.com. And here we do. We get an answer. And we're going to send JP out a ProSense product and a really cool Kong toy. Now, we, first of all, before we go to the other email from, um, I think it's Devani or Devaney, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about, we were finishing up the eyes. And one of the last subjects we talked about was the cherry eye and how disappointed and upset I was in many veterinarians that to this day are still performing the wrong operation on the cherry eye. Now, once again, for those of you that weren't paying attention or those of you that were asleep or those of you that just weren't online with us, cherry eye, is, it's a lay term for a prolapsed 
gland of the third eyelid. Anatomically, dogs, cats too, but this is more of a dog problem, has a third eyelid. It's a little flap that starts on the inside corner, and when they blink, it actually comes across the eye from the inside to the outside, and it acts as sort of an extra protective mechanism from things getting caught in eyes, which is very important because dogs that are typically working dogs or hunters will often go through brush, and they would need some extra protection because just blinking in of itself may not protect the cornea well enough. Well, anyway, on the inside of this third eyelid, there is a membrane, and there's a gland called the gland of the third eyelid, appropriately named, and it is a very lymphoid type of tissue, and it will actually sort of on occasion, and it typically happens in more likely than not in the Cocker Spaniel, the English Bulldog, the Lasopso, the Shih Tzu, that it gets so large, it actually prolapses. It everts, and you see this bright red thing right on the inside corner of the eye, thus the name cherry eye. And old-fashioned, back even when I graduated veterinary school, the treatment of choice was to simply remove the gland. And it was very simple surgery, and these dogs did very well. However, what we've learned over the years, that many years later, it could be 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12 years later, these dogs will present with something called KCS, conjunctivitis cica, and the late term for that is dry eye. And we're, I wonder why are these dogs getting dry eye? And we realized that that third eyelid, the gland of the third eyelid, had another function, a function that wasn't necessary as a younger dog, but becomes essential later on in life, and that is accessory tear production. So what happens is if you took that gland out when they were a puppy, and then they need the accessory tears produced by that gland, guess what? There are none. And that's how these dogs get KCS, conjunctivitis seca. So the new techniques, also once you do them enough, they're relatively simple. It's certainly more complicated than just lopping off that gland, but certainly can be done. And most general practitioners can do it. If you're, if you're nervous or anxious about it, you can send a case to a board-certified veterinary ophthalmologist. But something that becomes, for those of us that do it or see a lot of puppies, fairly routine. And um, I had heard stories that there are some, yeah, once it happened on an emergency facility where a dog came in on an emergency. By the way, folks, this is not an emergency. If it happens, don't panic. Call your vet. If they're closed, just wait till morning. No need to run to an emergency center. It is not an emergency surgery. There are dogs that can live like this with cherry eye for the rest of their lives. It looks unsightly, and there's some tricks needed to, to, to learn about keeping it. But I, I, I knew a guy that uh, he came in with a dog who was like nine years old. I said, oh, my God, it's so rare to see this a nine-year-old dog. When did it happen? He goes, oh, about nine years ago. I said, nine years ago, and you never fixed it? He goes, well, I asked my doc. My doc said there was no need to fix it. It was just aesthetic. It didn't bother me. It didn't seem like it bothered the dog. So there you go. You don't have to fix them as long as they can keep it moist so it doesn't dry out. Depending on the size and how good the regular tears are, oftentimes you don't need to do anything other than you live with it. But this emergency center not only did surgery, but the doctor who turned out to be a foreign graduate removed the gland. Clearly, I was very upset. Not only did they do the surgery, which it was not the type of surgery they should be doing on an emergency at an emergency clinic, but they did the wrong surgery. So I put it out there and wanted to know if anybody has had this experience. And I got a, an email back from Julie from Rochester, New York, who states, sadly, English Bulldog, it was a puppy, it was six, seven months old, had cherry eye, not uncommon for English Bulldogs, and the doctor removed the gland. So Julie, I am, well, first of all, I'm still a little bit shocked. 
I, whenever I hear stories like this, I always like to know how old is this doc? Where did this doc graduate from? Because it is something that is so well known at this time that we no longer do that. Anyway, if you're listening and you want to get me the information, just out of curiosity, I'd like to know. I mean, it's not certainly I'm the kind of guy that I'd call that doctor and say, hey, what are you doing? We don't do that anymore. So don't worry. Your bulldog's going to be fine for a long time, maybe even forever. But just know that possibly as he ages, he might start getting some dry eye. Anyway, we got to take our break here. It's uh, that part of the show. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Thanks for listening to Dr. Jeff Werber here on Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff. And stay tuned. We'll be right back. We'll be right back right after these messages. Stay tuned. This is my tired of itching face. Does your dog suffer from persistent itching and scratching? Allergies and skin irritations caused by environment, including pollens, insects, especially fleas, food, and common household allergens are common problems in dogs. It's easy to alleviate your dog's discomfort at home with ProSense. ProSense itch and allergy products provide fast relief from symptoms like itchy, irritated skin, skin infections like hot spots and watery eyes. ProSense products are veterinary formulated and recommended to ensure the very best for your pet. Try ProSense today. Your dog will thank you for it. Pets love life. Love them back with ProSense. There's nothing more delicious and healthy than an old family recipe. And for over 50 years, our family's been creating them especially for your pets. Nutrisource Super Premium Pet Foods. Dog and cat food that's all natural, holistic, and organic. Nutrisource Pet Foods contain our patented Good for Life system for your pet's optimum health and well-being. So order now. Safe quality food made by our family for your furry family members. Go to NutrisourcePetFoods.com. From our family to yours, Family Brands. Listen, cat people, it's just litter. Until you realize those big boxes mean big smells, big messes, and big money. Switch to World's Best Cat Litter, the only litter with concentrated power. It guarantees less smells, less work, all with less litter. Try the small bag that lasts one cat 30 days and you'll realize it's just litter. Unless it's World's Best Cat Litter. Find it at Target, Walmart, and at your local grocery and pet stores. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Coast to coast and around the world, it's All Behave with Arden Moore. Find out why cats and dogs do the things they do and get the latest buzz from wagging tongues and tails in Rin Tin Tinseltown. From famous pet experts and best-selling authors to television and movie stars, you'll get great tail-wagging pet tips and have a fur-flying fun time. All Behave with America's pet edutainer, Arden Moore. Every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. 
And welcome back. And if you're new, just joining us, uh, you are listening live to Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Werber, here on Pet Life Radio's only live call-in show. And a lot of you are so afraid to call in, so you can get me a number of ways. You can just join in on the conversation. Just go on to Pet Life Radio, click on the Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff tab, and you can see a big box, and it says join in on the conversation. Another way you can reach us is to call. It's toll-free. It's easy, 877-385-8882. And lastly, you can just send me a quick email. It will be forwarded to me live as we speak, and that is to drjeff at petliferadio.com. And again, we're here with the help of our sponsors, that's ProSense Pet Products and Kong, and anyone who does send a question in, does call me live, get the guts, get the courage, or sends me an email, we will send you out a product as well if we answer your email live on the air. Speaking of emails live on the air, we got another one this week, and it comes from, it's either, and again, I apologize because it's one of those names where I'm, I can pronounce it a few ways, but it's either Devaney or Devani, and she writes that she has two Boston Terrier pug puppies, and they have, I'm going to read it to you out loud. It says, we can't get our Boston Terrier pug mixes to have hard stool. The one dog is worse than the other. The stomach seems to be always bothering him. I don't want to pay my vet for expensive testing. Help. We have tried pumpkin, rice, yogurt, changed their food, and to even rice, weaned them off of the old stuff and on to the new. And yet, they're still having problems. So, Interestingly, Devaney, I'll stick with Devaney until I know better. First off, from the diet perspective, it sounds like you're doing things right. So a couple of things that, that I would like to add to this, and that is when we have a, a chronic problem like this, and especially with siblings, there are a couple of parasites and that need to be ruled in, ruled out. And in your note, nothing was mentioned about thorough fecal testing, specifically looking for some of the flagellates like Giardia. And you also, there's a test that I'd recommend. I don't necessarily recommend it on a first-time fecal exam, but since this has been going a chronic problem and you've done many things right, I would want to do a an ELISA test looking for the antigen itself for the Giardia. We need to come up with a diagnosis. Why? Because the diet, all the things you're doing are perfect. But if we have behind all of this a parasite that needs to be addressed, we're not going to get better without treating the parasite. And in many parts of the country, Giardia has almost become an endemic problem. It's everywhere. And it's very hard to find. We look for Giardia cysts in the stool and sometimes so difficult to find that though for basic fecal analyses, we do them in-house. When it comes to a chronic problem, one that seems not to be responding, I like to send it off to the lab, have the clinical pathologist look at the smears themselves, and also do the Giardia testing which I think is an antigen testing, which will give us more information. And if that's the problem, well, by all means, we need to treat that problem. Now, as far as diet and things like that, I mean, if we think that the stool is softish, just to give you a visual, and it might gross some of you out, but you know what? When we're doing veterinary medicine, we kind of have to gross ourselves out sometimes. Kind of that soft serve consistency. We call it a cow patty-like, where it's got a mush, it holds its shape, not pretty, but it's more like a plop. And if we have that, I usually am thinking, oh, in addition to that, having a dog that is happy, a dog that is eating, a dog that is still playful, with all those criteria met, most likely we're dealing with a large bowel inflammation. And as such, as such, um, we uh, don't like to use rice. Maybe you can use like a long 
grain brown rice, but certainly not white rice. White rice is too binding. And when we try to bind like that, we might be irritating the colon. And clearly, the colon's not ready to be working properly, because if it were, we wouldn't be having the stool of this consistency. You wouldn't be seeing any mucus. It would be holding its form better. It would be better shaped. So I love the pumpkin idea. I love the yams, cooked oatmeal. You can do some. These are all we call soluble fibers. We also want to possibly some insoluble fibers. These are the fibers that aren't digestible, things like psyllium and the active ingredient, for example, of uh, correctol or fibrol or metamucil. So sometimes we actually need to do both. And if that still doesn't work, the next step is to actually have a biopsy done, kind of like a colonoscopy. Either your general practitioner, if they are so inclined, otherwise you'll be sent to an internal medicine specialist. They will go up the colon with a scope, actually look, look at the folds, look at the lining, inspect the colon, and then take some samples and have the samples evaluated. This could be some sort of an infiltrative disease, something called, oh, it could be a, a colitis a lymphocytic plasmacytic enteritis. It could be an eosinophilic enteritis or colitis. And these often need special treatments or special, even more specialized diets to treat, uh, sometimes even corticosteroids. And sometimes in addition to metronidazole as an anti-colon medication, we might put them on a sulfur drug called sulfazalazine or azulfidine. So there are other potential treatments that need to be employed. From what you've done already, the diet, the fiber, that's fantastic. But what concerns me is the fact that it hasn't worked as well as we would like. So therefore, we need to take it to the next level. And that next level, as I mentioned, is going to be medication, a very detailed fecal exam, including a a Giardia test, an antigen test. And possibly after that, if that still doesn't pan out, then we're looking at biopsy and treating accordingly with whatever specialized medication we can. So we'd love to hear back from you. Let me know if you've tried these things already. If you have, let us know. We'll talk some more about it. And if you haven't, talk to your veterinarian. These are some of the natural things that should be next on your list of things to try. And then try them and, of course, get back to us and let us know what has worked and what hasn't worked. So I want to once again thank JB for asking us about how to introduce his new uh, puppy into a household with resident dog. Devaney for talking about her pug Boston Terrier crosses, and we wish you luck handling that. Please stay in touch with us and let us know. And finally, Julie, so sorry about the cherry eye. Just crossing our fingers for you, with you, that it doesn't become a problem later on. But just know, even if it's a problem, it's not a terrible problem. There are some easy solutions, some eye drops something to increase the tear production of the remaining glands that might get tired out, and just some artificial tears. It's not that big a deal. But um, in the future, for everybody out there, do not let a veterinarian take out the gland of the third eyelid unless it's a last resort, and only after you visited with a board-certified veterinary ophthalmologist to give the green light if it really is necessary to do that. So one of the things I want to do, and and I always have a backup in case we don't get any phone calls, which today we didn't, and I've already answered the emails, and I like to go through organ systems. We've started uh, with the limping dog. We've gone through the ear problems. We've gone through eye problems, Um, and what I want to do now, oh, the vomiting dog, intestinal issues. So now, you know, I do see a lot of rescue dogs because we do a lot of rescue work out of my hospital, and another disease complex that is very, very common 
especially in puppies and kittens, especially in rescue animals. And these are animals that have been living in rescue groups or living in shelters or in foster homes where the fosters, understandably so, are fostering more than just one dog. And most likely, many of these dogs have been in and come from a shelter. So if you haven't guessed yet, we are talking about respiratory disease complexes. And what is so important about discussing this as a disease complex is that the range can be anywhere from a mild infectious tracheobronchitis, also known as kennel cough, which by the way, and I think I mentioned this before, I don't love the term kennel cough, and I'll explain why if we get to it, all the way to a mild pneumonias, which can be lobar pneumonias, could be interstitial pneumonias, could be bronchiolar pneumonias, pneumonias, depending on where the disease is taking place. Two are a full-blown pneumonia, which could include aspiration pneumonia, and how to tell an aspiration pneumonia from an infectious pneumonia. And then finally, to some of the diseases that can cause severe respiratory infections, notably canine distemper virus. And distemper virus is an epitheliotropic virus, which means that it likes to attack epithelial surfaces. And one of the first epithelial surfaces it likes is the surface lining the respiratory tract. It also likes to attack the surface, surface lining the gastrointestinal tract. Also, so we see these animals that have snotty nose, severe signs of respiratory disease. They can have vomiting and diarrhea. It also likes the skin. So we see these crusty noses and these, that's why it got many times, if you talk to an older practitioner, they call distemper hard pad disease because the pads of these puppies that are stricken with distemper get very hard because of the epitheliotropic properties of the disease. And lastly, and the one that is the worst to have, the one that really provides us, gives us the worst prognosis when we have to prognosticate, and that is when it hits the lining of the neurologic system. And then we have neurologic disease, and that is where we have the poorest prognosis. Most often, we can maybe treat them and possibly get them through the respiratory phase. We might be able to get them through the GI phase. But man, once it hits the central nervous system, that's a tough one to beat. And if I have these puppies that start exhibiting signs of neurologic disease, my, tent, my take is that maybe it's time to stop trying because these poor puppies are going to suffer. And... Um, even, it's interesting, you know, t- talking about the neurologic symptoms of canine distemper virus, is there are dogs that can present with just the GI problems, just the respiratory problems, or both, and we get them better, and they do great. And then, later on down the road, they could start exhibiting certain signs of a neurologic deficit or neurologic deficits, and we refer to that as ODE, old dog encephalitis. Not necessarily that they're old, but they're older and they have no other signs of distemper. So this was lying dormant in the neurology tract. And so we have neurologic disease in the neurosystem and that can cause a problem later on. Nothing that can't be treated. We work with them. Uh, It's not as severe as when it happens to them in the active phase as a puppy, but it can happen. And it's also, by the way, don't kid yourself. It's not only a puppy disease. So when it comes to vaccinations, I am all for vaccines. I am not for over-vaccinating. We've talked about this a lot. So I'm a big 
fan of doing a titer test. And if the titers are accurate, are protective, no need to vaccinate. But, but if those titers are low, you need to get yourself to a veterinarian and you need to take care of the um, vaccines. Anyway, on the respiratory tree. So let's talk about the simple viruses. And that is the puppy viruses. Number one is going to be the upper respiratory disease complex. And that is probably one of the more common things we're going to see as a puppy. And interestingly, kittens, they seem to have more disease than just the respiratory disease complex. They have their own, but a lot of the kitten diseases have a phase that goes through the respiratory tree from chlamydia, we call pneumonitis, to the rhino and Khaleesi viruses, rhinotracheitis. So these are all kitten viruses, except for the chlamydia. Chlamydia is actually a bacterium that cause respiratory disease complex in the cats. And clearly, the bacterial portion, the chlamydia or pneumonitis, can be treated with antibiotics. There's not a lot we can do with the virals, for example, the rhinotracheitis. So our goal of treatment is we can do There are some antiviral medications that, that can be used. Um, there are also some ophthalmic ointments because part of this complex affects the eyes as well. And so there are some things that we could use, but oftentimes we're stuck with supporting these animals, with using antibiotics to treat the secondary infection, and then we go ahead and hopefully itself. With dogs, however, very common to see these dogs. And, I, and as I said, I, I, I don't like using the term kennel cough anymore. Why? Because it's no longer coming just from a kennel. I call it, especially in Los Angeles, where we get to enjoy such an outdoor, active lifestyle. We have take your dog to Melrose Cough, go to the dog park cough, go to the groomer cough, go to the vet cough, go to, you know, take your dog out in the neighborhood cough. I mean, it is literally everywhere. So people, you know, I, I, and the reason I really want to make the distinction is when that client walks in the door and says, yeah, but I don't kennel my dog. They never get boarded. So I don't need the kennel cough vaccine. Not so. If you go out and about, if you are passing dogs on your walks, it's respiratory. It's in the air. So it, chances are your dog may not be the source, but one of those other dogs may be. And they you know, pass each other, they sniff, you go to the dog park, you go to the groomer. There are so many ways that these dogs can pick up the respiratory disease complex. So I am quite the fan of vaccinating. As a matter of fact, a matter of fact, of all the vaccines, probably the Bordetella bronchoseptica vaccine is our weakest of all. I don't titer for that because I find that it's not going to be, well, there's no way to titer for it anyway, but the truth of the matter is, it is the weakest of the vaccines that most of the facilities that do do the, this boarding and the, uh, the grooming, the doggy daycare, the training facilities, you name it, they're going to recommend Bordetella every six months, and rightly so. It should be done every six months. And for typical dogs that are just backyard dogs, just go to walk in the neighborhood, once a year is probably fine. But remember, it's everywhere. And don't, you can't blame, you know, sometimes you've had dogs go to the vet or go to the groomer, and they're blaming the groomer. No, 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 it's that, it's everywhere. That's like blaming the school, the kindergarten, when your kid comes home with a cold. All right? It's very hard to stop. It's just, it, it is what it is. And a lot of times, like with human respiratory diseases, kids go to school already harboring it, but hasn't shown symptoms yet because he's in that three to five day incubation period. So 
No one knows the kid has it and then passes it on. So just kind of keep those things in mind. Anyway, we are out of time. I want to, once again, thank you for joining us. We'll be here next week. We're going to pick up on some of the more serious respiratory diseases that we see, some of the causes, some of the treatments. If you have any questions and you want to just get nerve, go ahead and send them to drjeff at petliferadio.com. Otherwise, you can join in the conversation next week or call us at 877-385-8882. Thanks again to Kong. Thanks again to ProSense. And we will see you here at Pet Life Radio's Ask the Pets with Dr. Jeff next week. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.